You've played venues of all sizes, like from restaurant patios and dive bars to sold-out stadiums on the other side of the world. I'm wondering, aside from the obvious answer of, like, there's a lot more people, what are the differences? Like, what's different about playing an intimate venue versus a massive one? And are the biggest shows necessarily the best shows? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, there's definitely a difference. Actually, the I think maybe because of the size of the venue, when you go to, like, a 15,000 place, Cedar place or like an arena or something like that. It's so much less personal. You're more in your own world. It's more like we're just playing. There happens to be 15,000 people there Um, because it's so big. I guess it's so big, but it definitely feels like less personal as opposed to when you're in a sweaty club that has 200 people in it, you literally can feel the energy so much more. Uh, So, playing big shows are not necessarily better. Obviously it's better because one thing you can never ever uh, forget is the roar of 10,000 people. Like (laughs) after you finish a song, that is ridiculous. I'll never forget the first time that happened, but, uh, but what, but it doesn't compare to the energy of like a small club when you can literally like, you know, metaphorically feel the sweat from these 200 people. uh, And it's so, you feel so much more connected there's a disconnect when you're playing for that large of an audience. It's weird. So I don't know. It depends what you like. I I like to do both. I mean, obviously we play more small clubs than we do huge arenas, but um, the times we've got to play huge arenas, those are experiences I'll never forget. It's funny because the last time I saw you in person, I was still in Denver. It's probably two or three years ago. You came through town and a few months prior you had been playing, uh, in arenas on the other side of the world. Then you had come through Denver and played Botanic Gardens, which is a nice like outdoor venue, but you know, a couple thousand people, but it's a very laid back kind of families come and, you know, bring their picnics and, you know, it's, it's a cool venue, but it's, it's very different than playing a stadium. And then when we came and saw you, you guys were playing like a little club and, um, you know, it was a few hundred people and it was sweaty and the bathroom smelled like piss and it was like all the things you want from like a rock and roll show. I have a great video and I'll include it in the show notes of you playing ZZ Top with a beer bottle as you fly <laughs> with the guitar. And I remember turning to Sabra and just saying, wow, you know, like in the last six months, he's played every different kind of venue you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. I'll never, I remember that, that, uh, that Denver venue. It was very much like that. I mean, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, the the huge arenas on the other side of the world is we were supporting, uh, you know, we had opportunities to support, uh, be support for tours, for major world tours. And that's when you have those opportunities, even the Botanic Gardens, you know, we did a string of shows at the Mavericks and, and the Mavericks took us along and we did a lot of that stuff with them. And a lot of them were Botanical Garden stuff. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, in that we also book our own stuff and, when we do our, our kind of thing, which is like what we call a small headlining club tour. It's exactly that it's a couple hundred people in a small sweaty club. Uh, you know, and part of what we do, there's an element that that works really well. Yeah. You know, our show changes when we're having to go in front of thousands of people. It's we, we don't take as many chances as when we're, playing for 200 in a small sweaty club because there's a lot more forgiveness there in, in certain ways, you know? I mean, as a music fan, I certainly prefer the small, sweaty, intimate venues, right? I haven't been to a stadium show in a while and not that they can't be great in their own thing, but for me personally, and maybe I feel a little different now in a, you know, kind of a post-COVID world, but, you know, the right. idea of being in a kind of small, cramped environment um, where it's, too loud and too hot and everybody's moving around. It's just like, it's just the best musical experience for a fan. Totally. Yeah. You like to saying, you feel the, the transference of energy between performer and audience member and back and forth. It goes both ways. Uh, uh, you can feel that. Are there, uh, are there some of the most, like, what are some of the most memorable venues? Not necessarily. So you don't necessarily prefer, you know, big versus small, but you've played like the, you played the Grand Ole Opry. Like, what is it like playing the Grand Ole Opry? And are there other venues that you go, yeah, I'll always remember that. And anytime we go through that town, I want to play that place. Yeah. I mean, the Opry was definitely hallowed ground. That, that was a, I mean, uh, you can't help but get on that stage and go, Holy shit, man. There's, this was, there is a, 
a, a, a legacy here and a story here. And so to be included in that, when we did our Opry debut a couple of years ago, and it was like, you, you just got that vibe, even being backstage. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. I was like going to church as they say, uh, what I loved about that is that the production and everything was so fantastic. It was like, so pro it was like awesome, but it was more along those lines of a high production, multifaceted audience, you know, so that was more like kept. It was more like, uh, proper, like, you know, it's not like we're, uh, you know, spitting on the stage and being like grabbing our grabbing a beer bottle and going into ZZ top. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like putting your show together. And in that case, our Opry was, I think three or four songs because the way they do it. Um, but we're, I mean, we have it down to the second, like how we're transitioning. So it's a lot more thought out. Uh, whereas in like the small club thing, you know, grabbing a beer bottle and having beer spill all over my telecasters, I'm trying to play a ZZ top medley or something that stuff. Actually, we even started doing that is because I think one time we were at a show like that. Uh, and we were like, I had been drinking beer and it's like, after you have enough tequila shots, cause people would bring us tequila shots when we were playing these smaller clubs. It's like, I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Here we go. I'm going to just try and play slide guitar with this beer bottle and drink it and keep, you know, cause I was already feeling it. So that just sort of happened. Now, like those moments happen when you're in a smaller venue, it's rare that those moments will happen when you're like, you know, doing the grand old Opry radio show or like sure. you're doing like a, you know, big thousand seater thing. Cause you gotta, you gotta have your shit together when you're, you know, you can't, you can't do that kind of thing. So that's, what's cool is that those, the smaller venues allow for those things to happen. Uh, I've got uh, plenty more questions. Before we get too far down the road, let me circle back and introduce you uh, real quick. The man on the other end of the line today is musician, songwriter, and producer Jerry Fuentes. You might know him best as one of the front men for Nashville-based genre-defying quartet, The Last Bandoleros, who spent the last few years pre-quarantine touring the world, playing the late-night TV circuit, and earning raves from outlets like Rolling Stone and CMT. I know you guys are recording right now, and I want to talk about that. I know you're going back out on tour pretty soon, and I want to talk about that. But before we get any of that, I, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. And I'm just curious, in terms of playing and performing, how did you find music, or did it find you? Well, I think it was part of my upbringing. So I, I guess you could say it found me, but it was more about my family. My, my family, I grew up with it. So my mother's family, all all of her aunts and uncles and my grandparents and uh, majority of my family, they all sang and played. So we would get together for family gatherings. And I can remember, I have memories of a kid of my aunts are my, my, my great aunties, my mother's aunts, and they would all be singing Spanish songs in harmony. And they didn't even realize they were in harmony. And I remember like, they would be like, you just take that part. I'll take this part. And they just sang together. And I have memories of that. I have memories of there being guitars around them playing like Spanish songs. And then when I was younger, my dad uh, also played guitar when he was younger and he, he was in, you know, bands as a kid, as a, as a young whippersnapper in San Antonio. And he was doing that for a while. And so a friend of mine down the street uh, got a guitar and I just kind of got into it and uh, he, you know, he would go to guitar lessons and then he would come home and show me what he learned in the guitar lesson. And I picked it up real quick and I was like, dad, I want to get one of those. So my dad got me one. And you're and roughly was, how old at this point? I guess like nine or 10 years old, something like that, maybe eight or nine or 10 or something like that. And then by the time I was 12 years old, I was already, I had taken to the guitar so fast. And so in that sense, it was like, Oh, I'm just discovering it. But I realized that it was because my mom's family just, it was entrenched in, in the, uh, in the culture and the family. And so uh, by the time I was 13, 14, I was playing with my dad as a father son duo. And we would go to the San Antonio river walk and we'd play venues. And it would be like, I was like this little weird sideshow circus thing. Cause it was like my dad, <laughs> excuse me, like my dad bringing his little kid. And then we would like start a drum machine on the keyboard and I would rip into like Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, we would get people to stop on the river walk going like, holy shit, what is this? And it was like some, some guy pedaling around his son, you know, for the tip jar. Uh, but no, it was, that was a huge 
uh, experience for me because we did that for years. We had a father-son duo and all the money we would make would buy me more equipment. Uh, and it was obviously a time for me and my dad to spend together, but it was, it was, uh, me learning how to play gigs, quote unquote gigs without, uh, uh, without having to go and, and really get a bunch of bruises from it. Cause my dad was there and I was so young, I couldn't do anything anyway. Yeah. And then I took that money and then we'd buy more gear. We'd buy more gear and then eventually started buying recording equipment. And then that's what sort of turned me onto a different path, you know? And you started recording early. I remember you put out, uh, and I guess I should say for listeners, you and I go way back. We went to high school together. You put out a record when you were maybe 15, I think. And that was, this mm -hmm. is before anybody with a mic and a Mac could record an album, right? You had to go into a studio and there were a lot of considerations. There were a lot of barriers involved. So you're what, you're 15 right. when you record your first album? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, like I was saying, so we started buying recording equipment and I would get like little four track recorders and I would make my own little songs up at the house, guitar instrumental pieces mostly. And one time my dad, we were at the mall and my dad runs into this producer that he knew was a successful producer in San Antonio, successful because he had a career in pop, but he also had a career producing a bunch of Latin, what they call Tejano music, which is very indicative in, of that region, right? Of Texas, Selena and all of that, that kind of genre. This was a producer that did that. So he knew he was connected to the music industry. My dad goes up to him in the middle of like Dillard's or Macy's says, here's my son's demo tape blah, blah, blah. You know, my dad just being a, a proud dad. Um, but you know, a couple of weeks later, this producer's like, yo, your son did this. And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, did you help him? And he's like, no, he's like, he did it by himself. He recorded it all by himself on a four track. So I think it caught, it caught that producer's attention. And he was just like, and how old's your son again? And I was like 13 or 14 at the time. So fast forward a year, my parents saved up some money and we had taken the money we played from gigs. And we paid to go to a studio because you're right. It wasn't like your own computer. I mean, this was like, besides the little cassette four tracks you had, it was, uh, you, you had to go to a studio. So we had to come up with thousands of dollars and go to the studio and record these songs. And so it was really great. The, these producers wound up taking me under their wing. And not only we were making a record and they were getting paid for it, but it was more that they were showing me how the record process is done. So I was learning how to do it. Uh, and then we're also making a record. So by that, that came out, I recorded it when I was 15. I think I did a big citywide like publicity launch thing by the time I was 16. Uh, but yeah, and it, all the meanwhile, we're in high school. Like I'm still trying to like make math class and shit, you know? I have fond memories of, uh, you know, back in the day, it would be very exciting when Jerry was playing the White Rabbit in San Antonio. And you would have to call during the day and get the recording of what time all the bands were going on, right? It was almost like right. calling movie phone back in the day, right? So it's yes, like, well, you're hey, right. we're going to go see Jerry this weekend. What the hell are they on? I don't have any idea. Somebody call and you know from their landline and listen to the recording so that we know what time uh, the band right. is going on. Do you remember your first paid gig? I mean, not including the you know the stuff with your dad. Do you remember your first paid gig? Um, still in high high school uh i was going and playing longhorn cafe which is a burger joint by myself with an acoustic i had done it with my dad previously but eventually i started singing and just playing acoustic and i got better to where i could like play songs people would want to hear while they're you know eating their burger i guess <laughs> but yeah i would go like i would play like clapton and stuff and then i'd be right in the middle of like those the quiet little verse you know Order number 54, your onion rings are, you know, I mean, it was just like, Jesus. So, yeah, but that was my first, like, I would do it every Sunday and I would, you know, I'd put the 50 or 75 bucks in my pocket. And uh, I did that for years. I mean, that, that was my, that was my sort of fucking around money, you know, as a, as a teenager. But yeah, that, that was, those are my early gigs that I remember. The taught me how to sing actually is doing those gigs over and over. You, you have, you can't hide behind anything when you're just by with an acoustic by yourself you know you talked about the recording process and how different that is how has it changed for you over the years um does does it all still come down to like booking time in a traditional studio or has Good the question. has the technology and the way everything has moved has it changed the way that you make music 
it definitely has changed the way you make music. I don't, I mean, unless you have the luxury and when I say luxury, you have the money hmm. or someone else's money to spend an inordinate amount of money booking a studio, unless you have that luxury. Um, and then not only that, you have that luxury and you're still steeped in the tradition and you don't want to make a record in a different way. Uh, then you go and book a studio or you get a band in there and, and you go and you track all this stuff the way that we think about it. Majority of the people that I know work with and, and associate with, no one makes records like that anymore. I, I, or they do a, a, a little bit of both for the first time we're making a new record right now. For the first time in eight years, nine years, we actually went and booked time at Blackbird studios here in Nashville, an amazing studio. <laughs> and we cut all the rhythm section at the same time. That was a unique thing. We only did it for two days. I mean, there were bands that would camp out in studios for weeks, right? And just run up the record label bill till it was $300,000. You know, we're doing it like, so we got a little taste of that, but we only did it for two days. Um, and then we do everything else at the house. The technology totally changes the way you make music. And I think the biggest difference is that you can look at the music you're making. Before when we were making, I remember when I first started in the studio, and I, I became an intern at that studio that I was working at. And I did my record when I was 16. I, for the subsequent years, I wound up learning. I don't think it was till I was 20 years old, 21 years old, maybe that you could actually look at the audio on a screen. And wow. when then you can look at, the, when you can look at the music you're making, that changes the way you make music. Uh, before you couldn't look at anything. You were just looking at, you were just using your ears and you were looking at needles bouncing but you weren't looking at the sound wave. And so I think that's the biggest technological advance that changes the way we make music. Cause the minute you can look at it, now you can edit it in a way that you could never really do with efficiency. Like you can do when you can look at it. Like back then you were, I mean, engineers, I remember when I first learned, I was, I was learning how to cut tape, two inch tape with a razor blade and you're taping it together with little pieces of tape. And I think about that now, it's like how destructive that is. It's like, you're Cutting the fucking tape. Like if you screw up, like, and I remember thinking back then, like, Jesus, I didn't want to ever do that. But you had to be sure about what you were doing. Uh, now all you have to do is hit Apple Z, you know, or, un, you know, or, uh, you know, and just undo it. Uh, so that, that really changes the game and technology. Now stuff sounds pretty good right out the gate uh, with sounds and stuff. So the, the need for an engineer is not as, as, as big um, and it allows, you know, for better or for worse, it allows so many people to make so much music. Some of it's great. Some of it is just not good at all. Yeah. Is that a good the, thing or a bad thing? Is it yeah. good that anybody can do it or do we need more filters along yeah, the way? I, I don't know I, because, you know, some of the greatest shit lately has been, you know, people that don't really know what they're doing, but they've conveyed a, a, a sense of passion uh, through, through using GarageBand. But for every one of those, there's a thousand that are just total like shit. It's like, it sucks that they also have the technology too, but maybe it's worth it because there's some music that we're not going to be able to hear if that technology didn't exist. So I don't know. I wish there was, I mean, it, there sort of is now, right? It's things like what you're doing right now. It's people that have passion about music that in our own way are curating, you know, and in their own in their own way, there's these filters that are, that are happening um, that I think we need more of because you start to, people start to find what they trust. They're like, okay, you know what? Anything that this guy talks about, anything that this guy puts on a playlist, that's going to be good. I, his tastes align with mine. So I just, God bless the people that are curating and filtering. Cause I can't do it. Holy shit. I lose have, my mind. <laughs> have you seen uh, McCartney three, two, one on Hulu? Oh my God. It's so funny. You just said that because uh, Gerald and I were watching it here at my house the last couple of nights. And there's some moments where we're cringing and there's some moments where we're like glued to the TV um, because yeah. So I've seen, I think we're on episode four, maybe me too. And I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, obviously you've got two legendary guys there. Uh, you know, Rick Rubin is, is, on onto himself is his own sort of crazy genius. And then, you know, McCartney, 
you know, I, I could listen to that guy tell stories the way a grandpa tells stories. I really could. Um, it gets a little bit like, like when he starts playing the piano and stuff, I'm like, and he's like giving a piano lesson. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want to, you know, I, <laughs> I don't need to know, like, this is how you play a piano chord. It's like, I'd rather hear the stories about how he arrived at this or like when they got going through the tracks. I love that. Um, so anyway, I, nonetheless, I think it's great that, uh, that some of these things are being documented. Yeah. I figured, uh, you, you and I share an affinity for the Beatles and I figured that would be right up your alley. I, I also hope I uh, am looking like McCartney when I'm 80, 80 years old. I turned to Sabre and said, you know, he's 80 years old. I know. I know. That's what's crazy. That's what's crazy. And it's his memory of it, too. Um, you know, it's the stories he tells. And, and it's less about the validity or the factual information of the story. It's more about it's how he remembered it. And, you know, it's, it's pretty spectacular. The Beatles inform a lot of what you guys do with The Last Bandoleros, and we're going to get there, but I want to try to stay a little bit sequential, even if we don't spend a lot of time on the intervening time between teenage Jerry making music in San Antonio um, and winding up with the Bandoleros a few years ago. You had a whole stretch in between where you were a professional musician in Texas, and then you were in New York for a long time. Tell me about those years a little bit. Yeah, well, essentially, from like you said, from... Uh from San Antonio, I started, I had a band in San Antonio and it was, you know, essentially it started with that album when I was 16 and then it just kind of kept going. And, uh, probably when I was about my, I guess I did that kicked around there for a while. And then I, I, uh, had some, you know, moderate success in, in San Antonio, but eventually got to the point where I was like, I've got to get to a major market. And, and, uh, through actually, my good buddy Gerald here, who uh, he was, you know, in high school with us as well. And he had gone up to New York and I had, there was some interest through him interning at Columbia. And then just uh, some interest had formed from a, a major uh, entertainment law firm. And it was just like, Oh, wow. And the next thing I knew I was living in San Antonio, we were in college and I was showcasing for major labels. It's like some of these major labels got to hold the demos and, I remember flying around to LA and New York and I was showcasing for major record companies and I was like out of nowhere. And, and it sort of showed me, Oh, this is going to be really hard to do from San Antonio. Now, again, you got to remember, this is also before MySpace. This was before, you know, iPhones and like the ability to like put music and share it from anywhere. It, it did, actually didn't matter where you were because that's how you, connected with the dots with people that were the gatekeepers of the industry. So well, I remember while I was doing that Napster was blowing up and then it was starting to kind of go down that road. But yeah, we, that's what pulled me to eventually that's what pulled me to New York. I got, a, you know, some offers, some like moderate off, like minimal offers to like demo deals and stuff where it, nothing really ever amounted to like, here is the big record deal. Uh, so that was, it was enough for me to go, shit, I have a chance at this, but it was also, wasn't enough for me to go, okay, uh, that's it. You know, this is going to be, so it was enough for me to go, okay, and I, I need to move to New York. So I, I, I did, I moved to New York and I thought, let me go to the thick of it. And the law firm that was shopping me around was in New York. Um, I got there and I got my ass handed to me because I didn't realize that I was really lucky being able to just play burger joints or cover gigs or college bars. And you can pay for your life. You can pay for your apartment and stuff. And in New York, that's not the case. So I actually had to go and work for Apple and I worked for Apple for years uh, in New York. And I just, I didn't come to New York. I came to make New York to make music. And what am I doing? Um, I have a name tag on and I'm saying, welcome to the Apple store. How can I help you? Yeah, but you know? Apple played your music in their stores all over the world and then sent you all over to open. Was that was that related or was that a coincidence? So what happened is the first two years of me doing this, I eventually got kind of fed up and I not fed up. I just got bummed. I was like, man, this is too expensive. Like I'm spending 40 hours a week. My feet hurt. I'm in a retail store. I'm, I'm working retail. Essentially, I'm working retail and I'm not doing music and I'm just so too expensive here. And so I was about to quit. And then Apple, Apple was like, 
um, listen, we do these like big corporate meetings for the New York market. And we would, we know that you and another guy, another coworker of mine who was also working retail with me, he was a musician and I became fast friends with him. We were like friends. We were the two guys on the, in the Apple store that were like artists, musicians. This was Ian. Yes, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he had a CD and I had a CD and, uh, our, so the, the, the head honcho of New York was like, we're going to do this big corporate conference. So it would be great if like actual Apple employees played for the conference. So you think you and Ian would, would play, he'll play the piano, you'll play the guitar and you guys will each do your thing. And so we're like, sure. And so I think Ian played a couple songs. I played a couple songs. I mean, maybe played a song together. And that was sort of the entertainment for this corporate conference. And, and every, all the, all the, uh, employees it was like going over like the quarterly numbers right well it just so happens that the head of all of north america for apple was at our new because new york again major market was there and then that's when they were like wait a minute these guys are our employees so that is what then parlayed into let's take them as examples of how talented our employees are and let's have them play Apple stores all over the world and conferences all over the world and let's have them. And so they put our songs on all over the Apple stores, all over the world. I think we did all of North America. We did Hawaii where you're at now. Uh, we would open up Apple stores and we did essentially an Apple store tour all the meanwhile, we were still technically retail employees. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, and that's what, you know, Ian is great big world. It's say something and all that. And that it was from that Apple launch pad that then parlayed into great big world for him, you know? And so it was amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, that's how that happened. It was so funny. Cause I was literally going like, maybe I just need to go back to Texas. At least I can play music and make a living. Yeah. Uh, but that was, and that's then New York, then New York became like, oh, okay. Now I can figure out how to do it. And then I was able to like make music and make a life. Fast forward now, uh, give me the genesis for The Last Bandoleros. Well, uh, so in, in New York, uh, I'm still in New York. So after the Apple Store tour ends, uh, I was doing my own solo projects. And then I had sort of, um, I had sort of decided on what it is. Gonna, I sort of gave up being an artist. I, I started going full steam ahead in production. I had always been producing since so I was really young at that studio from the get-go. And production is what earned me a living throughout the course of most of my life. So I was like, you know what? Maybe it's just time for me to not be an artist because it was so daunting to try to get people out to your shows and stuff. Uh, I was like, maybe I'm, I'm, I should be a producer. So I started producing everything I could get my hands on. And my thought was throw up as much as I could against the wall and see what stuck as far as production. So I was producing like an, an amazing Brooklyn indie uh, songstress uh, named Verite. She was awesome working with her. I started working with uh, another piano player from Berkeley. I started doing all kinds of different Brooklyn artists in the New York scene. And then I would come back down to Texas and I met these brothers that started working at the studio that I worked at in San Antonio. And I immediately met them and they had sort of like taken over my place at the studio right after I left for New York. And uh, we played together and I was like, man, this, we could do a kick-ass country project. And again, I'm thinking yet another project to throw on the wall here from a production standpoint. So I started flying back and forth um, and trying to put together this project with these guys. And uh, yeah, eventually, you know, they had their own thing going and, and eventually we had come up with, I got them to come up to New York a couple of times. We had eventually put together enough demos where I was like, shit, this thing could have legs. And I knew we were doing something that was sort of genre bending in the country world because it had this Tex-Mex influence, which we grew up that, that, you know, and their father was a Tejano legend right next to Selena. And so I just knew right away, wow, this actually could turn some heads. It's different. Um, and then it wasn't, I know again, I'm, I'm in New York this whole time. And then my roommate slash production partner that I was working with in New York is Derek. And he's the last member of the Bandoleros. And then we added him and I was like, dude, I remember going to D and saying, look, man, these two brothers down here, I'm doing this thing with, you should come in and, you know, a lot of Derek's sensibilities in production and writing complimented it well. And so we just kept going back and forth. And meanwhile, I was also doing a lot of other stuff. And the thing that really happened that really 
put the stamp on it though was I guess after about three months of this, um, I got an opportunity to go to LA uh, through a friend of mine, and that was back in New York, and was like, "Hey, I'm actually about to leave uh, Universal Interscope Records, but there's this guy I work for that I think you would really get along with." Um, and so before I do, I'd like to set up a meeting for you because I just feel like you guys would really click. And he's an executive. And I don't know, maybe you show him some of the stuff you're working on. And so I said, okay, definitely. So I take the little bit of money I had in my account and I flew out to LA. And I was like, get ready for this meeting. I have my laptop with all these different productions and I have the Bandolero stuff in there. I have this Brooklyn indie artist in there. I've got all the stuff. Cause I was like, I want to get a publishing deal. I wanted to get a publishing deal and I wanted to produce for this executive's artist. I wanted to work with pop artists. Cause you know, you start working with bigger artists. That's how you make your name as a producer. And so I remember going into the meeting. Well, I remember first I get there and then, and then I'm like, okay, the meeting's tomorrow. And then I get a phone call. Listen, he's going to have to reschedule. You know, I mean, you know, these exactly, it's like, yeah. And I'm like, fuck, I flew out here. You know, like in my last $400, I'm renting some little piece of shit car for like $40 a day. It's like a little beater. And, Anyway, then they're like, yeah, listen, it's Labor Day weekend. So um, he can do it the day after Labor Day. And I'm like, which is like staying an extra four days. And I'm like, well, shit, you know, so then I'm, you know, hey, can I borrow some money to change my flight? You know, because this was, I'm in New York. It's like, I'm not taking vacations. It's like definitely still uh, money was very, very tight. And I wound up staying and then I go in there and to that meeting and in I mean, I thought, okay, I got to play him shit right away. I'm going to have about 15 minutes with this guy at the most. Because in my head, I have these ideas of like how executive meetings go, right? They go like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, 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 good, good, good. Yeah, listen, uh, you know what? We'll call your people. My people will call you. You know, it's like you get shell brushed in and out of there so quickly. So I immediately start playing some of the music. And then he he listened to the first song. It was the, the Brooklyn Indie Artist that I produced. And he goes... He hits the first course. He goes, stop, stop. Okay, that's nice. What else you got? And I was like, shit, I didn't even make it to like a minute and 30 in the song. I was like, okay, uh, here's another guy. Here's another guy. I played this artist. Hits the first course. Okay, stop, stop, stop. I can tell you're a good producer. Um, you got anything else? And I was like, Jesus. I mean, I'm not even, yeah, again, not even 90 seconds in stopping it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to play one more thing. And then he's going to be like, okay, good, man. I'm so glad to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of doing a favor for his employee that was leaving, right? So anyway, um, the third thing I play him is the last band of So I played him, where do you go? And he starts playing, playing after the first chorus. He's like, stop, 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 stop. And I was like, damn it. Here it is. And he's like, what is this? I said, this is a project I'm doing. It's two brothers from uh, Texas. Da, da, da. And he's like, this is amazing. Started from the beginning. And I was like, okay, plays it, listens to the whole way through. And then I could tell I got him. Boom. We were in his office for an hour and it was incredible. And that was my manager, Martin Kirzenbaum. And he offered me a publishing deal right there in the meeting. I told him all about this project. He was enamored with the Bandoleros. He's really enamored how special it was, how different it was. He had not even knowing this 25 years when he started uh, with his first job with Warner brothers, he was the public publicist for the Texas tornadoes who are Texas royalty. And that's sort of the sort of the legends that we were sort of basing our cultural sound on in a way, you know, those guys were taking rock and country and they kind of put this Spanglish Tex-Mex sound in it. And that's kind of what we were doing in a much different way, but in a, you know, in our own way, but nonetheless, we grew up with that music. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, the Texas tornadoes. He's like, yeah. He's like, my first job was with them. We sold half a million records. And I was just floored. I was like, I didn't expect this executive from LA to be like, no Texas history like that. So that is long winded story of that is how the Bandoleros were become. Because then once we got him on board, it became a train that was moving. Um, and, you know, I got a publishing deal and I started doing a bunch of other pop production stuff under his wing. And uh, obviously he manages us now and, um, you know, the doors he's been able to open have been insane. It's just been crazy. I'll bet you're glad you stayed those extra four days in LA. Oh my God, dude. Oh my God. I could, I mean, I couldn't even believe it because I remember like going like, I'm going to get back to New York and I'm not going to have any fucking money to pay rent because staying in LA when you don't live there is expensive. But I was like, you know what? 
this is a chance to meet an executive. And then when he canceled the meeting, it was like extra four days. I was like, but I never forget getting in the car, driving down the 101. I think I called Gerald. I was like, dude, I think I just got a publishing deal. <laughs> Cause it was crazy. It was, uh, yeah. I wasn't expecting it. You know, I was playing weddings. I was, I was in a wet, I was doing weddings and corporate events in New York, black suit tie kind of gigs at like super fancy swanky things. Cause they paid really good. I didn't have to work at Apple anymore. I could still do, but I was like running Motown bands. Cause those are the high dollar gigs. You know, you'd go to these like yacht clubs and Yale clubs, all these fancy midtown financial corporate parties with a suit and tie on. And those are the gigs that you could, I could do four or five of those a month and it would pay for my whole life in New York. Going from that to being able to do original music was insane. What do you love about the Bandoleros? What makes you guys special? Probably that we all have different influences. And when we just sort of do what we do, uh, it's weird. It's, it's our blessing and curse. We are definitely making a type of country rock culturally injected music that uh, it's hard for people to put a finger on. And I think that's also, that's what's amazing about us. That's what I like about us, but it's also the biggest hurdle that we're finding now having gotten into the major marketplaces. Uh, it's also the biggest hurdle we're having to find because, uh, you know, let's be honest, the consumer, the general consumer public of music, it's really, it's easier when it's something's in a category or something's in a box, you know, and when it's not, uh, not only do the consumers not know where to put it, uh, the people that sell it and promote it and play it on the radio. And so they don't know where to put it. And if they don't know where to put it, then they don't know where the advertisers are going to put it. And so it's like, now we're in this rigmarole, you know? I remember the first time I, uh, saw you guys in print and they referred to you as a country band, which I think is probably what you're mostly referred to as. But I remember thinking, Oh shit. It hadn't even occurred to me that this was country music. It doesn't really sound like what you would associate with, especially contemporary country music. There are a lot of Beatles influences. There are a lot of harmonies and all the, the harm, the harmonization that you talk about your, you know, your great aunties back in the day, a lot totally. of that stuff comes through um, in the band and there's so much there. It's a little bit rock and roll. I definitely see the Tejano and the country influence. There's um there's just so much there, and I see what you're saying. It's the the lack of a genre of a specific genre is kind of a strength and also a maybe a difficulty sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. no, it's it's very true. Uh, you know, we were in New York, <clears throat> me and Derek, and then the brothers Emilio and Diego were in San Antonio, and this was a writing project that obviously became a band very quickly. And for the first year of us touring around, it was always like all right, who's flying where, where are we leaving from? <clears throat> we live in two different places. Um, it was never really, I knew we were doing something with country. I thought we could get some attention with it, but I did not expect us that fast to get signed to Warner brothers, Nashville. And when the executive vice president of Warner brothers, Nashville came to our Austin city limits performance, and literally in the back trailer of the Austin City Limits performance, he's like, I'm not leaving to you guys are Warner Brothers artists. And this is a guy that wow. is responsible for 20, 30 something Blake Shelton number ones. This is, I mean, it's as country as it gets. And he's a genius producer. And, and you know, but I never thought, I mean, I knew we were, we were country on the fringes of country, but I, we definitely have a rock element to us. And a lot of people like you are like country. Okay. Yeah, I guess, but I kind of thought you guys were rock, you know? And so it's weird. Um, but we took our swing at country and I knew we fit there because a lot of it is steeped in country roots, but man, country is a weird, it's a weird town, man. Uh, I, I, I mean, listen, I love Nashville, uh, but the genre of country, the gatekeepers and the, it's strange. It's strange. It's like, uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and again, because like you said, it's difficult. We don't belong to a genre in a way we have definitely a, a, a one of our feet and pant leg is soaked in the country water for sure. But the other one is probably steeped in rock and roll Americana. It's got this retro beetle, like you said, all that stuff. And some of it 
uh, and then the Tejano stuff. And, and some of it scares country programmers. And, and we've, as we found out, but it's, it's a game. Listen, it's all a game. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, as much as I hate to think about music like this, you're making a product that's got to be marketed precisely in a way or else people aren't going to absorb it. And, and so it's, we, we we're riding that line all the time. You know, one of the really great things about the modern music landscape, I think, is that a lot of the bands that have come along in the last, especially the last 10 to 15 years, I would say, are of the age, our generation, and frankly, a little bit younger, um, who have had more access to more kinds of music than ever before. And you hear music now by people who were genuinely deeply fans of country, just as much as they're fans of hip hop, just as much as they're fans of Motown, just as much of their fans of Metallica, and you can hear such a rainbow of music from individual artists in a way that I think was never available before the internet, frankly. I mean, before we I, were all able to tap into, I'm, I'm always blown away by meeting somebody who's 25 years old and they know stuff about bands that broke up before they were born. And it's just, it's incredible how ubiquitous that is. So you had a lot of twists and turns and a lot of genres mixing up, and then it only got weirder. Um, how did Sting come into your life? Um, Sting came into my life when kind of all while this Bandoleros thing was happening, um, our manager has been working with Sting uh, on the A&R and publicity side for 20-some-odd years. And so Sting was, this was 2016 maybe? Sting was wanting to make a new record and he was wanting to make a new record that uh, was more rock and roll, a little bit more police esque, if you will, a little bit more like the police than he had done previously. And he was like, I want to make a rock record. And so our manager was like, I think we should try to let's change it up a little bit. And Sting has had the same sort of band that he's toured and played with for decades, right? It's a Dominic Miller, who is an amazing guitar player has been his right-hand man for 30 years or something close to that. Um, and then Vinnie Caliuta and some of these, I mean, we're talking like the, the cream of the crop, the best dudes in the business playing behind Sting. So Sting's in New York and I'm in New York and Martin is like, I've got, or actually, I'm sorry, Sting was living in New York at the time. Uh, but he was in LA in his Malibu house and Martin was like, why don't we go to the studio and try? I've got these two guys from New York and it was this drummer that was playing with us at the time as New York guy that I knew and amazing drummer and, and, and me, and he's like, I'm going to bring, he's like, sting, I'm going to bring some young cats in here and they're going to jam. We're going to do your live versions of messages in a bottle. And um, I guess it was so lonely. Uh, and it was two live versions that he was wanting to put on this album. And he's like, you know, we kind of rock these out. Maybe this is sort of our, we use this as our inspiration for like the new record. He's like, so let's go to this studio in Santa Monica and let's, why don't you come in? I'll, these guys will know the tunes and like, you just get it under your hands with them and see maybe a little bit of young blood in here will kind of spur this thing. So this happens. So I'm the guitar player brought in one of them this drummer from New York. And then the other guitar player is a guy named Mike Isinger, who is the lead guitar player and principal writer of a band called Incubus. And so you know, Mike is awesome. Obviously Incubus was great. And so then Incubus has got their own, obviously they're ginormous, right? So Mike was happy to jam with Sting. And, and, and so it was me, Mike, and this drummer, and then Sting. Sting walks in and we're like, holy shit, it's Sting. But we play this, we play this whole versions of these old police songs and we track them and sting is having fun. And he's like digging and he's like, okay, yeah, this there's urgency here. And it's probably because we were a little nervous and because we are younger and anyway, he was totally into it. And then now go back to New York. Cause he was in New York. Now I get the call from Martin and he's like, listen, um, sting had things had some time. He was on a tour with Paul Simon. He comes back to New York. He's like, now the tour's over. He's he's uh, he's going to uh, going to go back in the studio. And listen, good news is your uh, 
he wants to work with you and Zach, the drummer. He's like, but Mike, uh, you know, so somehow I, I got called back. But my, I think well, Mike had his own thing going on too. And obviously Mike doesn't need that kind of stuff, but <laughs> it was still like, wait a minute. He was like, yeah, he's such a favorable memory of that experience that he's like, yeah, I want to go into it like with that, with those guys. So that's how we started. And we started making this record and this record became 57th and 9th, which he released in 2017. And then, uh, I had played guitar, a lot of the stuff. And then we, I started working with sting in that capacity. And that's when I started, once you started, once I kind of started working with him, it, you know, sting is one of these guys where, uh, which is why he has people like around him that have been with him for 30 years. He finds guys that he likes to work with. He doesn't stray from that. So I was just like slowly getting my way in there and, He's like, look, let's get Jerry to do this. Let's get Jerry to do this. And he was also doing a single from another European artist. So I wound up getting called to like play guitar for him on the, on Jimmy Fallon. Um, and then, then he was doing the all-star game and he was like, we're doing the all-star game halftime show. Uh, you think Jerry would play guitar? And then we need another guitar player. And I was like, look, Diego in the Bandoleros is an amazing guitar player and knows a lot of the police songs. So then we pulled Diego in. And so then me and Diego were playing guitar for Sting for the NBA halftime show. So then it started to kind of just like little opportunities he would ask us to do and we would do a good job and it just sort of built. And then we got asked to sing backup vocals on the single from that album. And he really liked that. And then we got asked to open up a couple handful of shows in the North America. Well, listen, those guys sing backups on the album. So let's have them open for a couple shows. And we did. That went amazing. We started in Vancouver and then we went down the West coast. That meant that went amazing. And then after I think the third show, he's like, I don't want the show to change. I want these guys to open up the entire tour across the world. Wow. So it literally was like, boom, 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 boom. I mean, of course this is over the course of like a year, maybe, but it was just like, you know, one opportunity that went well, went into more opportunities, you know? So that's, then we, for all of 2017, uh, and for a majority of 2018 or parts of 2018, I mean, we were touring on that. We were touring his album with him opening up for sting. And that's when we got to play some of the most iconic and ridiculous venues. That was life-changing experience. I mean, <laughs> we were open, excuse me. We were opening for sting for crying out loud. What is the thing about Sting that would surprise people? Like, what's something that a fan might not know or expect about Sting as a person or as a musician or any of it? Well, I don't know if people would know this. I don't know if people think about this when it comes to Sting. Um, but what I probably, my one of my biggest takeaways uh, from Sting was, as a fan, I don't think about his work ethic, right? I don't think about his work ethic. I mean, you think, oh, yeah, he probably works hard. His work ethic is ridiculous. I never felt lazier. And this guy has got decades on me. His work ethic is, and I, again, it's like the more I've been lucky enough to work with some of the top people at the top of the totem pole in this industry, there is one common thing. And they all have some kind of crazy OCD work ethic that puts them there. Sting doesn't quit. His work ethic is unsurpassed. He's some of his, so that would be the, that was my biggest surprise is that his constant quest for getting things right, doing it great job. I would have thought that like a rock star like that is somebody that's a little bit more leisurely and like cool, you know, he still like bust his ass still. And that kind of stuff doesn't go away. You know, I mean, it's like even when he was doing he was doing the same shit when he was broke with the police trying to break Roxanne. Yeah, it's still the same. And now the guy's got more money than God and doesn't need to do that. But he still does it like he won't stop. He'll, he won't stop touring. He won't stop. Uh, I mean, now he just does it a lot nicer, you know, um, and I didn't realize how healthy he is, too. I remember sitting on the couch with him, like much like this couch behind me in here. We're sitting we're in the studio couch. And we're listening. This is in Santa Monica. We're listening to some of the playback. And he's reading his iPad. He's reading an article on the BBC and he just starts kind of stretching. I could see him just kind of doing this with his arm. And, and then he takes his leg, grabs his left leg by his ankle and full on like a ballerina goes like all the way up with his leg, 
like stretching it like up. Like I was like, dude, how is this man this flexible? Like I can't even show you right now on Zoom. Right? I can't even show you what it looks like. It was crazy. You turn to the band he's like, just, I got to go take a lap around the block or something. This I mean, not- yeah. And he's like, meanwhile, he's you know one hand holding the iPad, the other hand just stretching his leg, like really stretching those hammies. You know what I mean? I mean, like, holy shit. I was like, okay, like the yoga thing, all that stuff. I believe all of that. <laughs> and you guys were, am I right? Were you guys out with him uh, earlier this year once things started to open up a little bit? So obviously the, the, when COVID started opening back up, I was, I was with him about two months ago. Um, I had gotten called in to play guitar for him uh, because he had a private in New York and the private that he had in New York uh, was at Webster hall and they couldn't get Dominic, his guitar player, his right-hand man because of COVID he lives in France, Dom does, and they wouldn't let him in the country. The French embassy was like, no, you can't come in the country. He couldn't get in. Um, and so I, I remember getting the call, like going, hey, there's a chance you might, like if we can't get Dom in the country, you might have to fill in. And then as it got closer, there was like a 90% chance that it was going to be okay. Like 10% chance we need you, but go ahead and mark the dates down. And then like about a week before they were like, okay, now it's a 90% chance we're going to need you because <laughs> they're not going to let him in the country. So I had to go there. I flew to New York. Um, and yeah, I've got to do a, a private, uh, show that was, uh, live streamed all over the world for, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people and stuff. And it was, it was amazing. It, it felt great. Cause it was one of my first shows back too. Um, and then the fact that I got to go and do it with things. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It was incredible. Yeah. It's something incredible. I'm hearing a lot from a lot of my musician friends right now is yeah, man, getting back out after, you know, being on my couch for a year is, is really a, a weird for, for most musicians. And I'm sure it's probably true for you. This has got to be the longest in your life that you've gone without horrible. playing shows. So yeah, um, it's horrible. Yeah. There's nothing like ripping the bandaid off with, uh, with staying in New York. No shit. <laughs> You've been very kind. I'm going to let you go here in just a minute, but there's a couple other things I do want to touch on real quickly. I know you guys are on break right now from, uh, the Facebook live show that you do around a neon cactus, but I know all of those episodes and you guys have done 50 plus episodes, um, are up <laughs> on YouTube and they're really fun. Would you talk for me a little bit about what that is and the genesis of that show? Yeah, absolutely. So we were um, now again, this is what's kind of ironic about this is we were uh, I think it was 2019. We had an idea. We wanted to start doing we were starting to write all these songs in Nashville, searching for this big country singer. We started writing with all these amazing writers here in Nashville because we were like, we need a single to go to country radio. Right. This was the big thing. So we started amassing. I mean, 20 songs, 30 songs, 40 songs, 50 songs. I mean, we're writing every, almost every other day with these awesome writers. And we're like, we're writing more than we can record. We're like, we need a, we need a way to show our audience that all these new songs are writing, but our label didn't want us recording them until we felt like we had quote unquote, a single, but we're like, man, we've got like 50, 60 songs. And a lot of these are great. We want to show them to our audience. Well, the way we can do it, that's not going into a studio and recording and releasing it is we can do it on Facebook live or Instagram live. So we, well, let's put a little thing together. Like we're around the couch unplug style. Anyway, it developed into this concept that we had, we were inspired by uh, the Zach Galifianakis thing uh, between two ferns. Oh yeah. That was sort of the inspiration. We are like, instead of between two ferns, why don't, why don't we go around a neon cactus and put a cactus, you know, at Diego's house, like on his little coffee table and, you know, drink, beers and let's like play some of these all these new songs we're writing with all these writers here in nashville let's play them to our audience so we did and that initially was like a way for us just to do that then it just started we started doing it every week and we started getting a lot of love on facebook as a result of it and (coughs) excuse me said facebook was doing a um a campaign and we got selected for facebook to do because we were doing this show quote unquote it wasn't really supposed to be a show. We turned it into one, kind of, uh, but it was a way for us just to play unplugged for our fans. And uh, Facebook got behind it, did a lot of uh, advertising. We were getting a lot of love from Facebook, so we decided to just go with Facebook. And, uh, yeah, we started at the end of 2019, and I think we had been months in 
three or four months in, maybe five months in, we were doing every Wednesday and then COVID hit. And then we were like, shit, what are we going to do? And we're like, we already have a weekly thing. We're already doing it. So it was great. Uh, So we were able to just continue straight doing that. We've done two seasons now. We did one season. Our first season was a year. We did 52 episodes. And then we did a second season. And that season lasted three months. And we decided that we were going to break seasons up into three-month chunks um, just because it's it's pretty over, it's pretty time consuming and over overwhelming. But um, yeah, so we did, we did, uh, you know, we did through COVID, we kept, we kept going and we would just do it via zoom. Um, but yeah, it's now we're on a, we're on a bit of a hiatus. We've been on a hiatus for a little over a month now and uh, we're going to start up season three uh, in the next several weeks. We're going to, we're putting together content for it and, you know, it kind of morphs and really it's just a way for us to get, connected to our audience and we get to play songs we don't ever get to play you know live and when they're when you're around a couch playing acoustic that's not really what people see us when they see us live they see us balls to the wall rock so this is another way for people to see us but yeah it's really great we get a lot of we get a lot of love it's around a neon cactus it's at 7 30s on wednesdays at the last bandolero's facebook page it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun to see you guys in your own element and your own personality, uh, you know, breaking each other's balls and having a good time with each other, playing your own stuff, you know, to your point, the covers you guys do too. I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, I mean, Prince, yeah. George Strait, Van Halen, yep. Ario Speedwagon. I went yeah. through the other day in prepping for this and I found the one you guys did with Shaggy. And yeah. I've had that fucking song stuck in my head ever since. So I, yeah, I mean, it was really cool in the moment, but you know, like five days later, I'm waking up (laughs) in the morning and I'm like, why am I still singing the Shaggy song? Oh, that's That's right. right. Yeah. Shaggy was amazing, man. We did a, we did a writing session with him. We went to his studio in New York and we got to spend time with him at the end of 2020 uh, as things were kind of settling down and we all got COVID tested and then went up to his studio and we wrote a bunch of tunes with him. And then he was like, yeah, listen, you guys, uh, I'll be a guest. So we, he zoomed in with us and mm-hmm. talked to us. It was fantastic. He's amazing. It's funny to think about you sitting in your shitty hotel room in L.A., waiting out the four days for your meeting with Martin, yep. wondering what the fuck's going to happen. I got to borrow money so I can stay here. If somebody had right. come to you and said, you know, in a few years, you're going to be playing all over the world with Sting. You're going to be yeah. headlining shows. You're going to be playing the NBA all-star game. You're going to be recording with Shaggy. Like, would you have even believed that that would be? No, possible? I mean, it's funny because back then I was, I was like, you would, I would have done anything. It's like, I look at it now too. It's like, there's, I've been so lucky in so many ways, but it's like, it's, it's like little steps, you know, I remember going to New York and going, what am I doing? This sucks. I'm working at Apple. But then four years later, I was like touring Apple and then I was like, and then I didn't have to work at Apple because I got corporate gigs. And I was like, oh, that's a win. And then I meet Martin and that's a win. And then I'm saying that's a win. So I just keep trying to have little wins and hopefully get to a point where I can, you know, do do this and get a provide a great quality of life for myself. You know, it's like it's hard. I mean, this industry is really, really brutal. So it's funny. It's hard to see the forest through the trees all the time, but you know, you just got to stay positive, well, I guess. You're a humble guy, but it's a testament to you and not just to your abilities. I mean, you're obviously an incredibly talented guy, but your perseverance with this, because I'm sure there were a lot of exits on this highway that you could have taken at any point along the way. And so it really right. is a testament to you that you didn't pack it all in and just get a day job, um, that you really have committed to making a career and a life out of music. And here you are, man, you're doing it. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate tell me that. quickly. Uh, what can you tell me about the new album? Um, well, I actually can't tell you too much because we're in the middle, we're in the middle of some stuff, but I can tell you this, uh, we're working on a new record. It's, uh, it's some bitchin' tunes, man. They're really cool. We're going to be playing them live. Uh, we'll be playing some of them live, um, over the course of the next couple of months. We're doing like bottle rock fest up in Napa Valley on September 4th. Uh, we're doing yeah, and the, the lineup um, for that is ridiculous, right? I mean, who else is on that bottle rock show? It's like Foo Fighters. I, think, I mean, yeah, Foo Fighters, Miley. Uh, there's all kinds of things. Portugal, the man. There's some bands I really want to check out. Um, some shows that we've got coming up that I think are going to be where we're going to have the opportunity to play some of these new tunes. Um, we're going to be releasing stuff, hopefully 2022. Um, but yeah, it's just 
you know, it's slow, man. Everything's kind of slow right now. It's it's because it's the, the the resurgence back in, everyone's coming back in. So it's just, you know, we're working on music, but we're trying to play back in. We're doing a show with Cheap Trick on August 5th in Houston. Um, it, you know, it's it's slowly starting to percolate back to normal times. And I think once we get that, I think by the time these this music's done, uh, we're going to see uh, who our partners are going to be from from different business sides. And then 2022, we're going to be looking for hopefully a new release. Well, it's exciting, man. I definitely will include all that stuff in the show notes, um, all the sh- upcoming shows and all the links to stuff so people can find you. Jerry, thanks so much for doing this, man. I really of course, appreciate dude. it. It's so good to see your face. Give, uh, yeah, give Gerald Hooper a hug for me. Um, and I, I hope we can cross paths at some point soon. It would be good to see. I thought I was going to be in Denver for your, uh, you guys are playing Denver Day of Rock at the end of August. I thought I was going to be in town for that. It looks like now I might not be, but right. shit, man. Get to, why don't you book some Hawaii shows? No shit, Get right? Get your ass out here. You got a place to stay. I'll put, you, I'll put the boys up go. here. Yeah, that would be amazing, dude. Are you kidding me? Oh my God, I'd go there in a second. For sure. All right, give Sabre our love. That was the great Jerry Fuentes. You can find The Last Bandoleros on your social media outlet of choice. The handle is Last Bandoleros. And there are links plus videos and more in today's show notes at charliekeaton.com. If you're listening on Spotify, stick around a few seconds longer to hear a song from their self-titled 2016 EP. Something to look forward to is a production of Brubaker Creative. I'm your host, Charlie Keaton. Thanks for listening. More soon. Much love.